Several weeks ago now, Pastor James came to me with an interesting request. He wants Calvary Chapel Christian School to adopt a mascot. He thinks it will bolster school spirit. It'll give our students something to rally around. And I agree. I think it's a good idea. Of course, that set off a debate over what we should adopt as our mascot. We quickly eliminated bulldogs and yellow jackets for obvious reasons. I mean, why alienate half your crowd? Then there were the obvious choices. We could go with lions, for Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, or eagles, for Isaiah promises those who wait on the Lord shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. A wonderful passage. Of course, the only problem with that is that 95% of Christian schools are either lions or eagles. We wanted something a little more unique that we could call our own. My suggestion was bees. The Calvary Chapel Christian School Bees. And why bees, you ask? I was thinking of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The bee attitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the poor in heart. The Christian life is not so much about what we do as what we be. It's more about attitude than it is actions. You know, the Pharisees trumpeted, do, do, do. Jesus said, be, be, be. Frank, Frank Sinatra sang, doobie, doobie, doo, but that, that's another story. <laughs> and yet it's pretty hard to turn a bee into an inspiring mascot. There's nothing really outstanding about a bee, and besides, it's too close to that other stinging insect. And so, here's what I think has won the debate. I believe we're calling ourselves the bears. The Calvary Chapel Christian School Bears. And again, you might ask, why bears? Well, it too is biblical, for we're supposed to bear fruit and bear witness and bear one another's burdens and even bear with each other. Thus, it seems that bears is a good mascot. Besides, bears makes for a really cool t-shirt. Don't you like that? That's in the works. I bring all of this up because in our text today, Paul rallies the church together by listing for us several inspiring mascots. Here's how to think of the church at large. The church is a nation of fellow citizens. Paul calls the church the household of God. We're a building with a very strong foundation. And the church is a temple where God's dwelling place. When you think of the church, you should picture it. It's mascots, a nation, a household, a building, a temple. And yet, sadly, this brings up our first problem. For few folks today think about the church at all. It's either a non-factor in their outlook or very low on their list of importance. In a 2013 Barna survey, 1,000 American adults were asked, what do you think about going to church? 30% said that attending church wasn't important at all. 40% were ambivalent. They could take it or leave it. 
only 30% said that church attendance was significant. Of those who downplayed the importance of church, 40% commented, I find God elsewhere. Another 35% complained that church wasn't personally relevant. I thought it was shocking that among the younger generation, 20% said that God is missing from the church. And of those who claimed to have experienced some spiritual growth in the past year, when asked what made your faith grow, the church didn't even make the top 10. You see, people today, they're losing interest in the church. And we could point to all kinds of reasons why. Certainly the church itself at times shoots itself in the foot and undermines its standing. Scandals and hypocrisy, outdated methods and a disconnect from the culture have all turned people off to the church. But I think there are other reasons as well, many of which are no fault of the church. We live in a saturated society today where the devil has distracted us from what's ultimately important. Stores are open. Sports are scheduled. Sometimes work morphs into a seven days a week proposition. For my kid to play select, we'll have to miss church. Sundays are the only day for lessons. We bought the timeshare and we've got to use it. Here's what I hear most. Sunday is my only day for me. Well, once upon a time, Sunday was the Lord's day. Actually, I suppose that all these distractions that the devil employs to keep people away from church is really a blessing in disguise. For it means that if you come, you really wanted to be here. You made a deliberate choice. It's a priority for you, and that's a good thing. You see, I think our relationship with each other, the church, is like most other relationships in our lives. There's a tendency for us to take for granted what's important. This happens in marriage, doesn't it? Husbands and wives begin to ignore each other. This happens in families. Parents and kids become strangers. And it happens in our relationship with church. We fail to value the spiritual connection that we have with each other until all of a sudden it's been neglected for too long. When life squeezes in on us, when demands and pressures hem us in and we need to free up some time, it always seems that the spiritual is the first to get trimmed. Reminds me of the pastor who spent an hour in prayer each morning. Once during a very busy season of life, he was asked if he had had to cut back his time in prayer. He said, oh no, I'm now so busy I need to pray more. You see, it's when we don't have time to make that spiritual investment. That's when we need it most. God wants us to view our church commitment as an anchor in the storm. It needs to be upped on our priority list from a luxury to a non-negotiable. Don't undervalue church. Today is the first Sunday of a brand new year. And I'm being honest when I say it. The best advice that I can give to you this morning is this, make church more important, not less. That's certainly the implication of this morning's text. Paul mentions our mascots to rally the troops, to inspire us, to revive our love and loyalty for the church. Now remember, Ephesians 2 starts 
with a rags-to-riches story. We need to play a little catch-up. It's been a while since we've been here. It starts with a rags-to-riches story, and don't you love it when someone unexpected strikes it rich? I mean, the poor prospector, he hits the mother load, and now he can afford to buy a small country. Or a Cajun family of rednecks make a perfect duck call that evolves into a multi-million dollar enterprise, a duck dynasty. I mean, that's why everybody loves the Robertsons. The good old boys became superstars. And this is what's happened to you and me. In Christ, spiritually speaking, you've gone from rags to riches without the beards. We've gone from death to life, from sin to saved, from wrath to blessing, from lust to loved. All of this is explained for us in Ephesians chapter 2. And we've been saved by grace. We did nothing to earn God's acceptance. It's his free gift. It's love that's on the house. We received it when we believed it. And through his blood, Jesus has not only reconciled us to God, but he has now reconciled man to his fellow man. Through his blood, Jesus has done a marvelous thing. You see, the sharpest, most hostile, most bigoted divisions among men, and no two groups ever were further apart than Jew and Gentile. Jesus abolished these distinctions on the cross. Jesus is the commonality that now overshadows all our differences. All men become one at the cross. In verse 13 of chapter 2, Paul says that those farthest from God have now been brought near through the blood of Christ. You see, no man or group is any closer to God than another. For the only reason that any of us have access to God is Jesus Christ. At the foot of the cross, you'll find level ground. All men come to God the same way. No one has an advantage. We're all equally guilty and in need of a Savior. The only line of demarcation that remains to separate us is whether or not we're in Christ Jesus. You see, in verse 15, Paul explains that at the cross, we've become one new man. No longer Jew or Gentile, black or white, male or female, young or old, rich or poor, Republican or Democrat, bulldog or yellow jacket, boxer or briefs. We're all one in Christ Jesus. You know, the early church referred to Christians as a third race. No longer Jew or Gentile. Now something totally new. And this is how we need to see ourselves and each other. If I understand what Jesus has accomplished, when I look at you, I'll no longer focus on the color of your skin or the clothes that you wear. I'll see past all of that. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So, here we are. A new man. A third race. We're now all insiders with God. Elsewhere, we're called the church. That word denotes a group that's been called out of the pack. You see, from the masses of humanity, God has chosen you and me and all Christians and made us something different than we were before. In Christ, God has created a new people group. He calls us out, the church. You see, what the United Nations has failed to do, 
what envoys and ambassadors have failed to do, what global keep-peacing organizations have failed to do, Jesus has done in his church. He's made a way for men to be one. The U.S. spends $7.7 billion on the United Nations to bring us together. We should just give it all to the church. But what characterizes this new group? What describes you and me together? Do we have a mascot? Well, indeed we do. How about a nation, a household, a building, and a temple? Paul writes in verse 19, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. In the Old Testament, God's plan recognized one nation, Israel. Jews alone carried passports from God's kingdom. The remainder of mankind, regardless of nationality, were considered strangers and foreigners. When it came to God and his blessings, we were illegal aliens. And yet the Jews failed to appreciate their special status. And when God sent prophets to warn them, God's servants were rejected. God eventually sent them his only son, and they killed Jesus to steal his inheritance. In fact, in Matthew 21, Jesus predicted all of this in a parable, and he ended it with a dire warning for the Jews, but a promise for us. He said, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And we are that nation. God has given his kingdom to us in Christ Christians now get to live under God's rule. This is what Paul means when he calls us fellow citizens. We have now been supernaturalized citizens in the kingdom of God. I love 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It speaks of the church. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. We have God's spirit and God's nature within us. We're a new breed of human being, a creature that has never before walked this planet. That's you and me. You know, America is also a nation of foreigners. All of us were either immigrants to this country or we were the descendants of immigrants. The Statue of Liberty was erected in New York Harbor to welcome the flood of strangers from Europe that came to our country in the 19th and 20th centuries. A plaque on that statue reads, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send those, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. This was the promise of welcome and liberty and a new start made by America. And she had many takers. Immigrants poured onto our shores, excited about the possibility of citizenship in our new country. But not only its benefits, they were also eager to accept its responsibilities. They were honored to wave its flag. And these same words should also be engraved on the doors of every church. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Send those, the homeless, the tempest-tossed to me. If you desire freedom and peace and a new start and a place to call home, then welcome to Christ's church. The church constitutes God's kingdom on this earth. What a privilege it is to belong to the church, to wave its flag, 
to enjoy God's freedom and blessing. And yet with that privilege comes a responsibility that we also should embrace. What if the millions of Irish and Italians and British and Germans who came to America failed to take part? What if they'd stayed insulated and isolated, reaping the benefits of democracy but refusing to participate? If that had occurred, our country wouldn't be the superpower that it is today. Thankfully, those immigrants from Europe, they worked hard, and they paid taxes, and they voted, and they ran for office, and they served in our military. They took their newfound citizenship seriously. So should we. But likewise, in the church, we've been welcomed to a new world in Christ. We wave a new flag. We enjoy blessings we did nothing to deserve. We've been greeted and brought near to God through the grace that's in Christ. We are now citizens. But citizenship carries with it responsibilities. We enjoy the benefits of the church, but do we serve its members and fund its mission and lead when asked and fight its battles when necessary? Again, pollster George Barna, he has his finger on the pulse of current trends in the church world. He writes this, Surprisingly, a majority of American adults, about three out of five, claim that they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their lives today, yet loyalty to the church as an institution in which we have a personal investment and in which we care about is dropping. Membership in Christian churches is waning. Willingness to assume leadership roles in the congregation is declining. In other words, the average adult thinks that belonging to a church is good for others but represents unnecessary bondage and baggage for himself. Most Christians today view church as optional. I've quoted this statistic before, but a U.S. News survey revealed that 80% of Americans believe it's possible to be a good Christian without ever attending a local church. The New Testament knows nothing of that. For many folks, Christianity is no longer about membership and participation in a community of believers. It's about personal help and enhancement. As the U.S. news article put it, it's spirituality turned inward rather than citizenship in a nation, in a holy nation. John Wesley once said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. To be part of Christ is to be part of his body. We're saved out of the world and into the church. But Paul gives us another metaphor to describe life in the church. Notice verse 19 calls us fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice we're a household as well. And this makes it much more personal, doesn't it? Oh, I love my country. But far greater is my allegiance to my family. And in Christ, you and I have been made members of the family of the household of God. You know, it's always great to come home. No matter where you go, no matter how wonderful the visit, it's, there's always something good about getting back home. Home is where you can relax, where you spread out, where you have space. On the road, you live out of a suitcase, but at home, you can stretch, you have room. And these are the same joys of living in God's household. You're loved, you're accepted, it's grace. 
God allows you room to grow. You can unpack your baggage and deal with your issues. He welcomes your problems. Unroll them, and he'll help you sort them out. You know, I was privileged to grow up in a wonderful family. Our house was full of love and laughter and lots of fun. But as I look back, there were specific things that made it great. First, there was an atmosphere of acceptance in our home. You know, we could always be ourselves and not be judged. You know, out there in the world today, the pressure's always on. You're under a microscope. We're always being measured and evaluated and tested and tried. Oh, fall short and you risk being rejected. But the opposite was always true at home. Our house was a place we could let our hair down. We could relax the string, so to speak. We could be ourselves, even if you knew you should be better. And this is what the church should be. A place of love and acceptance. A refuge from the storms of criticism. At church, we're no longer surrounded by clients and colleagues. This is where brothers and sisters meet. It's been said, every seat in the church should be a love seat. If that's not our experience, then let's make it so. The second thing that made our family successful was we defended each other. My brother and I had some vicious fights. Boy, did we ever. We made the octagon look tame. But let someone lay a hand on my kid brother, and he'd have to answer to me. We looked out for each other. I'll never forget a baseball game when a dad from the other team, he got too involved, and he picked a fight with me. I was just 13 years old. But this man accused me of running over the catcher, which happened to be his son. I was innocent. Besides, a grown man's got no business picking a fight with a kid. My dad was on the other field watching my brother. And when he heard about what had happened, he came looking for that other dad. Later, dad said he was glad he never found him. But he was willing to take up for his son. And this is what you find in a healthy church. People look out for each other. They have each other's back. They don't let the devil pick on a brother or sister without coming to their defense. A family is protection. You know, the one place I always felt safe was at home. The same should be true of the church. And I know the third thing that made for a good family was the unconditional love that we practiced. No matter how much I embarrassed my mother and my father, they still loved me. Boy, I know at times I brought shame to the family name, but they never kicked me out of the fam, disciplined me, yes, punished me at times, but abandoned me, never. And this should also be true of the household of God. Have you ever been conducting business and someone said afterwards, I can't believe that guy's a Christian? Seriously, has that ever happened to you? Maybe. Have you ever brought embarrassment on the church? Perhaps I've embarrassed you. I've heard people say, I brought a friend that Sunday, and you told that terrible joke. I couldn't believe it. It happens. But church is a house of forgiveness. I don't expect you to approve of all that I do, and I don't doubt that I'll agree with everything you do. We will bug and embarrass each other, but please still love me. You see, the world around us knows nothing of grace. Author Philip Yancey, he coins a term. He calls it ungrace. It's when folks love only the lovable. They give only when there's the expectation of mutual benefit. They serve only when someone might serve them. 
We show love only when it's warranted by the recipient. It's all about ungrace. But where is this world going to learn about God's grace? Love that can't be earned. Love that's never deserved. Love that's unconditional. Love that flows from God's heart. I'll tell you, it will only learn it from the church. The church is God's household. And it's also God's building. Paul depicts the construction, he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together. Now, if we were choosing mascots for the church, i got to tell you, this would be my favorite. The church as a nation, as a household, as a temple, is clean and sweet and nice. It's just a rosy picture in your minds. But this is a different sort of analogy. The church is a building. I mean, this is a construction site. This is a work zone. Understand when God comes to his church, he wears a carpenter's belt. He rolls up his shirt sleeves. He knows this is going to be messy and sweaty work. God is building on a foundation that has already been poured. It's strong and stable and solid. We're told in 1 Corinthians 3, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the slab on which the structure rises. The footings are the prophets and apostles, holy men moved by the Holy Spirit that brought us God's Word. The living Word, Jesus, the written Word, the Bible form the superstructure on which this whole building stands. But that makes you and me the two-by-fours and the drywall and the sheetrock mud and the shingles and the siding. You see, the church isn't a prefab. We're stick-built. It's one board at a time, and that requires extra effort on the part of the contractor. The Holy Spirit, He saws and He trims us and He nails and He squeezes and He sands down and He files and He fits us and He finishes us. See, church is never boring when you realize you're the board. The Holy Spirit sizes us up and cuts us to plan and then fastens us all together. We become a building. When you and I can't get along with each other, that's not a problem for God. He uses that friction to trim off our rough edges and humble us and teach us to submit and serve. How else do mavericks learn to be team players? Often when church gets messy and feelings get hurt and people get rubbed the wrong way, we take the easy way out. We bail. We escape the carpenter's touch. No wonder we stay stunted and never mature. There is no question Christians can accomplish more together than we could ever accomplish apart. But some of us never hang around long enough to find out. When the hurdles come, we move on rather than stick it out. It's easier to do our own thing and miss out on the lessons that we learn from the rigors of relationship. I've heard it said, it's easy to lose interest in a church in which you have nothing invested. Over the years, I've noticed three types of church members. There's pickers, there's kickers, and there's stickers. Some folks are always evaluating and being real picky and never really making a commitment. They're the pickers. Other people, they join a church, but then they buck its direction and they constantly complain. They're the kickers. 
But then there's some people that sign up for better or worse. They stay for the long haul. They're the stickers. And they reap the great rewards. Oh, the church, it's a nation. It's a household. It's a building. And finally, verse 21 tells us it's a temple. The whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We also are God's temple. Realize God has always had a headquarters on earth. When the nation Israel was born, God dwelt in a tent built by Moses called the tabernacle. Later, God made his home in Solomon's temple. But then when Christ was born, the glory of God came to dwell in human flesh. It was John who put it in chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt, or literally, tabernacled among us. But when the risen Lord Jesus ascended back to heaven, God chose a fourth and final temple in which to dwell. His last outpost on earth. Guess what he chose? He chose us, the church. We now are a holy temple. We're the dwelling of the Spirit of God. On the one hand, the Bible teaches that each of us individually is a temple, that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in another sense, the church corporately, as a whole, our fellowship together constitutes a temple. God's Spirit dwells among us. He acts as we act. He loves as we love. He breathes His life into our interactions. Today, the church is God's headquarters on the earth. We're his habitation, his dwelling place. You see, to get in on what God is doing in the world today, you have to hang out in the church. In God's plan, the church is where the action is. In the Old Testament, the temple served two purposes. It was for witness and for worship. It spoke of God's glory and it occupied God's praise. When men wanted to come to God or interact with God, they journeyed to the temple. And this needs to be the reputation of every church. A search for God should lead a person to the church, not from it. Our love for each other, the caring, the protection should draw men to explore the reason for such grace. Every church should be a curiosity to its community. Here's what I can't get over. The church is referred to as God's dwelling place. Oh, it's true. You can go out into the woods or by the lake and you can behold the glory and wonders of God. All the world is God's domain. But there's something special about the church. God camps out in his church. Church is home to God. It's where he builds his fire and warms his hands. In the church, among the praises of his people, in our fellowship with each other, God dwells. I love Psalm 22, verse 3. It's a picture of the Old Testament temple. It tells us that God inhabits the praises of his people Israel. God inhabits, he dwells within his praises, our praises. Literally, he is enthroned in our praises. When the sacrifices were offered on the altar in the temple, the aroma rose to heaven as a sweet smell to God. And likewise, God relishes our worship and praise. This Christmas, I got so much joy of sitting down in the middle of my grandkids and helping them open their presents. 
Well, understand, God sits down among his kids in the church. People today have no problem believing that God is in Christ, but they have a harder time seeing that Christ is in his church. That shouldn't be. Let's pray that God's presence in this place becomes so thick that his awareness among us becomes so real that you can cut it with a knife, that our love makes God evident. I've heard it said, a church should make it easy for men to find God and difficult for them to forget him. When Franklin Roosevelt was president, he frequently attended a church there in Washington, D.C., One weekend, the pastor got a call from a reporter asking if the president planned to attend that particular Sunday. And I love the pastor's reply. That I cannot promise, but we expect God to be here, and we figure that will be incentive enough for a reasonably large attendance. And God's power, God's presence should be our expectation whenever we gather together as his church. Let me close with the story of a pastor who moved to a small town in the Midwest to take over a traditional church. This church had seen its better days. There was no momentum. The people were so apathetic. They were ready to quit. No one cared anymore. It was sad. But the pastor had one final idea. He put an ad in the local newspaper one Saturday. It was an obituary. He announced that the church was dead and he invited everyone the next day to come to the funeral of their church. Of course, the ad stirred up quite a bit of controversy. There was a large crowd there that morning. When the people arrived, they noticed an open casket in the altar of the church. The pastor delivered the eulogy and then he asked the folks to file by and pay their last respects to their church. But as the mourners peered into the casket, their faces turned red with embarrassment. For the pastor had placed a mirror in the coffin and he had propped it at just the right angle so that everyone who looked in saw themselves staring back at them. You see, here's my point. All morning I've been talking about the church as if it were a thing separate from you and me, but not so. You are the church and I am the church. And whether this church thrives or dies, it's up to us. Years ago now, a young lady came to our church. She had many struggles. And, and you know, I'm happy to say that Calvary Chapel was there for her in a big way. We had the privilege of providing some really significant help in her life. But I'll never forget the day when she came up to me and she announced, Pastor Sandy, I've received long enough. I'm ready to start giving back. Here was a person who understood church. I've heard it said the church is like a blood bank. Sometimes we go to give blood. Sometimes we go for a transfusion. Over time, both are necessary, aren't there? But everyone can't keep taking if someone doesn't give. And here's my question to you this morning. If everyone at Calvary Chapel showed your level of commitment, what kind of church would we be? How serious will we take God's charge to his church? We are citizens of a new nation. We're the family of God. We're his household. We're the building of God that he's constructing with his own hands. And we're his dwelling place where folks can come and find God. The old adage is true. The world at its worst 
needs the church at its best. In this new year, let's not focus on ourselves. Let's be the best church that we can be.